The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning, Christ Pres. Happy Easter. My name is Luke Paiva. This is my wife, Johanna, my son, Jack, my daughter, Lucy, my daughter, Grace, and my son, Benjamin. And today's Easter message is from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, friends. Good to be with you. Just want to show you a picture of what Easter was like in here last year. Uh, That was me, and uh, that was the seats that you currently occupy, and so progress, right? Uh, Thankful to be together. This is our fourth and final service here at Old Hickory Boulevard. Uh, Welcome also to all of you out on the breezeway. You sounded great out there. I snuck out to to take a peek and a listen, and also to those of you who are uh, in the theater, and also those of you who are joining us still from home, uh, good to be with you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, I want to start the sermon by acknowledging that there are three different approaches that people take to faith. Uh, Some uh, live in what they feel is necessary denial. Uh, Marx used to call faith an opiate for the masses. Mark Twain said that faith is believing what you know ain't true. It's not every day, for those who do doubt, it's not every day that a virgin gives birth to a child or somebody turns water into wine at a wedding party or walks on a body of water or says to a person that was born blind, it's now time for you to see things, and then they suddenly see. It's not every day that somebody feeds 5,000 men and their families with just a handful of fish and a handful of loaves of bread, and then after the meal with all of those people, there's actually more food left over than there was at the beginning. It's not every day that those kinds of things happen. It's not every day that somebody rises from the dead. It's not every day that somebody lives a true happily ever after story with the mortality rate being one person for every one person. Our oldest daughter, who's a very deep thinker, always has been when she turned 10. Her 10th birthday, she had an announcement for my wife Patty and me, and the announcement was that all those happily ever after stories you've been reading us for all of our lives, all of these 10 years of my life, I recognize now that those stories are for for people nine and under. 
because once you turn 10, you realize that happily ever after stories are hard to come by. So, so many people believe, but they believe that they believe in a bit of denial. Then there are people who believe for aesthetic reasons. If you read about the life of Christ, if you see the way that he treated people, if, if you get a glimpse into the moral vision of scripture, you find something that's more beautiful and more compelling than you can find anywhere else. And that's why so much art, so much literature, so much music, so many lyrics are filled with scripture even from those who don't believe, because there's such a beauty to it. You know, Dostoevsky once said this, he said, there's nothing lovelier, deeper, more sympathetic, more rational, more manly, and more perfect than Jesus Christ. If anyone could prove to me that Christ is outside of the truth, I would prefer to stay with Christ and not the truth. That's how compelling Christianity was to Dostoevsky. He said, even if, if somebody could prove to me it wasn't true, I think I would still be in because it's so beautiful. And then there's the third reason why people believe, and that's the rational reason. Let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that there is a God. Let's assume that there is a creator, that that, that, that is how we account for Water, earth, sky, photosynthesis, oxygen, carbon dioxide. That's how we account for fingerprints and noses and the five senses and, and, a, and a heart that, that beats and regulates the system. That's how we account for oxygen and all of these things. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that there's a creator behind all of that. If that creator is powerful enough and great enough to create humans, animals, the heavens and the earth, isn't that creator also powerful enough to suspend the very laws that he created in order to allow a virgin to give birth to a child and allow a man to rise up from the dead after being buried for more than two days? If God has the power to create it all, doesn't he have the power also to, su to suspend the natural order of things in order to communicate that he's there? So the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms, without the third reason for faith, the rational reason, the denial and, and the aesthetic approach collapse. The Apostle Paul, who was once Saul of Tarsus, actually was once hostile toward Christianity. He was uh, sort of enemy number one in the Middle Eastern world toward Christianity. And then he claims to have been encountered by Jesus Christ having risen from the dead, and that changed everything for him. And for the rest of his life, he gave himself to be an ambassador of this message to anybody who would listen to it, that Christ has risen from the dead. And one of the things that, that he wrote in one of his letters in the Bible is that if Christ did not rise bodily and physically and in time, space, history from the dead, then our faith is useless. It's futile. It's meaningless. And we are pitiful if he didn't rise from the dead. But he did rise, Paul says. Gave his life for that belief. This is an incredibly radical claim that Jesus Christ was dead and buried on Friday. And then on Sunday morning, 
Over two days later, he rose from the dead. And then the the Bible accounts tell us that over a period of 40 days, Jesus offered many convincing proofs to over 500 eyewitnesses that he was alive again. If it's true, if Christ really did come up from the dead, then it authenticates everything else that he said and did. Namely, that any sin can be forgiven, that any hurt can be healed, and that any future and every future of those who believe will be bright. I want to convince you of these things today. I'm showing my hand. I want to convince you that it's all true. I want to convince you that it's all beautiful. And I want to convince you that it's all going to be okay. So are you ready? Number one, it is all true. There is ample reason to doubt every doubt you've ever had about this stuff. There is ample reason to be suspicious about every suspicion that you've ever had about the resurrection of Christ. We'll start with what the Bible says and work our way from there. When the women brought spices to anoint Jesus' corpse, they found the very large stone rolled away and the tomb empty. When they entered, they saw, with their eyes, it's very sensory, this experience, they saw a man in a white robe. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he said. He has risen. He is not here. See, with your eyes, the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And they did. Okay, isn't this just using the Bible to to prove what the Bible says? That's what people call circular reasoning. Everybody knows that in, in any court of law, The facts of what actually happened or the facts of what actually did not happen must be substantiated by eyewitness accounts that are also credible. Eyewitness credible. Were there people who claimed to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ? Yes, many. One was Peter who's mentioned in the angel's message to the women. In his second letter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, we, referring to himself and all of the other disciples who lived their lives closely to Jesus for Jesus' three years of intensive ministry and who claimed to have seen him risen from the dead. Jesus says, we did not follow cleverly devised Fables and made up stories when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, I think, so, you know, a thinking person might say, well, people say that about UFOs also. How do we know that they're telling the truth? How do we take this seriously but not take people who say they've seen UFOs? Seriously, how do we know that Peter and his friends just didn't have extra cannabis in their system or something. Or were taking a hallucinogen of some sort. Or maybe they were sleep deprived and they were seeing things. It's not likely. So speaking of court of law, this is something I kind of pull out of the archives 
about every other Easter or so, just to remind us all that smart people believe this stuff too. Simon Greenleaf, one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School, his specific area of expertise was analyzing testimonies to determine whether or not they were eyewitness testimonies and whether or not they were credible. And based on credible eyewitness testimonies to determine what did happen and what did not happen in the court case. He wrote one of the premier books that, that, that has been used in law schools and the top law schools all over the world to help future attorneys prove things. Prove that things happened, prove that things didn't happen. And as a professor, he would regularly mock the Christians among his students. And in front of everybody else, the whole class would try to humiliate them and, and, and especially would go after the resurrection. And he would call it the resurrection hoax or the resurrection myth. And one time, a group of his students at Harvard Law School said to him, Dr. Greenleaf, that if there's anybody in all the world who has the expertise, who has the skill, who has the mind to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, it is you, sir. And so we would like to res respectfully challenge you to prove it. Prove it's a hoax. Prove that it's a myth. And Dr. Greenleaf said, I will gladly take on that endeavor. And in the process, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, Oxford historian, there's another one. Ivy League universities, all of them but one were founded by people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you go to Harvard's campus, you'll see over just about every academic building, scripture engraved over the doors. If you go to Princeton University, you will see there's a cemetery on campus. And who is buried there? Theologians and ministers who founded Princeton. If you go to Yale, you will see the vast Jonathan Edwards Library. Who was Jonathan Edwards? He was one of the founders of Princeton. And on and on and on. And, and so you can say a lot of things about Christianity to try to discredit it. But one thing you cannot say with any shred of intellectual integrity is that smart people don't buy into this stuff. And I don't have the time to give you all the different logical reasons why to embrace faith as a rational thing. And so what I've done is I've assembled an essay and I've made it available to anybody who wants it. You can actually grab your phone right now and text to 66866. And, and, and text the word, he is risen. One word, no spaces, no hyphens. He is risen to 66866. And that essay, the link to that essay will be immediately sent to your phone. You can take it home, you can read it, you can consider it for yourself. Bottom line, this is what separates the disciples from the Branch Davidians, right? They died for something they thought they were, they, they that they thought was true, but they were duped. They were deceived. Why would we think that the disciples weren't deceived? We're talking 11 of them. 11 of the 12. John died of natural causes. So the 11 of the 12 were 
had a demand placed on them that they renounce their faith by the state of Rome or else they would be executed. And they chose to be executed rather than renounce their belief that Christ had risen from the dead. Now, either you know that you saw him or you know that you didn't. What group of 11 fools would get together and agree that they would be executed for something they all know didn't happen? Not likely. Even if you are convinced that this is not fiction, we have to acknowledge, specifically we Christians, have to acknowledge that there is an aesthetic problem. Unlike Dostoevsky, there are a lot of people whose experience of Christianity, especially through Christians, falls significantly short of beautiful. Mahatma Gandhi was one of those people. Gandhi in his autobiography uh, uh, was very clear and very explicit that, that his humanitarian ethic was something that he got straight from Jesus Christ. He was deeply inspired by the way that Jesus treated those that the Bible calls the least of these. He was deeply inspired by Jesus Christ's moral vision of neighbor love. But he said, the Christians in my life, on the other hand, I knew to be brash, bigoted, and self-righteous. And Gandhi is famously quoted as, and he may or may not have said this, but he actually did say many things like this. He's famously quoted as saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And Gandhi became a Hindu. Another was Francis Schaeffer, founder of Labrie Fellowship, very wise philosopher, also a pastor. And one thing that Schaeffer noticed somewhere around my age as a pastor was that his fellow pastors, many of them were mean as a snake. They slandered each other, they gossiped about each other, they competed with each other, they were mean. And so he sat down with his wife and he said, I have to, just for the sake of integrity, suspend my faith in Christ for a while. And I'm going to look into Hinduism. I'm going to look into Buddhism, to Judaism, to atheism, to agnosticism, and also Christianity. And I know this sounds scary to you because we built our lives on this stuff, but I can't. I have to, I have to look into these things myself because these mean-spirited pastors don't match up with the person I see in Jesus. And what happens with Schaefer after several weeks of doing all of his reading and investigating and time alone in the woods, he comes back to his wife and he says, I'm convinced, Edith, that there's one reason and only one reason to be a Christian, because it's all true. Now, does that prove it? No. But does that say that you have to be dumb and check your brain in at the door in order to believe this stuff? Absolutely not. You have to check your brain in the door to say that you have to check your brain in the door. If you are not a Christian because of Christians, I, I want to acknowledge, hopefully on behalf of every Christian in the room, that I get it. That I have been tempted to walk away because of Christians as well, including the one that I see in the mirror. Including the way that I don't live up to the things that I say that I believe, including all the Peter-like examples that I see and experience. Peter, even after he witnessed Christ risen from the dead, 
never completely got over his abrasiveness, his cockiness, or his bigotedness. Did he grow? Did he progress? Yes. Was he ever made complete and whole? Not until after he died. And so here's what I want to say with a little bit of pushback to, to maybe those like Gandhi who say, yeah, I'm with Gandhi. I like your Christ, but not your Christians. And so I'm going to go another route. I want to push back a little bit on that too. Let's say you go to a piano recital of your favorite six-year-old. Maybe it's a, one of your kids. Maybe it's a nephew or a niece. You go to the piano recital and the, and the six-year-old butchers a Mozart piece. What is the logical next step? I'm never listening to Mozart again. Well, that sounds silly. You can't pin it on Mozart that a six-year-old doesn't play his music like Mozart played his music. You understand what I'm saying? So I'll just leave you with that. It's all true and it's all beautiful. How can it be beautiful when, when we've got people like Gandhi and Schaefer having different experiences than the beautiful experience? Or how about the Crusades? Or how about how all those people over the years have used the Bible to justify slavery by misusing and misreading the Bible and misapplying the Bible? How about all of those scandals even in the past year of supposed Christian leaders crashing and burning morally, hurting women, hurting children? How about that? These are good questions that cannot be dismissed. And, and it puts an onus, it puts a responsibility on us as Christians to live more beautifully. And yet, there's also the truth that everything that's good has its counterfeits. If it is ugly, bigoted, abusive, judgy, mean-spirited, it is not from Jesus Christ even if it says it is. It is not of Christianity even if it says it is. First Peter chapter two, again, Peter, our favorite guy. Oh, Peter. Sometimes he lived very inconsistently with the things he said he believed. Sometimes he lived consistently. Peter, in one of his better moments, wrote these words. Live such good lives in the world that people may see your good deeds and glorify God. It's God's will that God's people do good, right? Because Peter saw what Christ could do, and now the world is meant to see what Christ can do through his people making us a different kind of people, a life-giving kind of people, good neighbors kinds of people, people who live in hope, people who suffer well, kinds of people. Jesus said similar things in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
What we're talking about here is what we could call a truer Christianity, a truer Christianity that is more congruent with the vision that Jesus gave for his people. A truer Christianity has a compelling aesthetic that leads even to a secular intrigue and curiosity. Madeline Lingle in her uh, lovely book, Reflections on Faith and Art, it's called Walking on Water, said this, we draw people to Christ, not by shouting them down, not by telling them loudly how right we are and how wrong they are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they cannot help but ask the source of that light. If you do a survey of history and you drill down who the main influencers, the major influencers were in the world of the arts, in the world of the sciences, did you know that Christians invented the hospital? And so maybe Jesus would look at Nashville, the Silicon Valley of healthcare as they call it, and say, you're welcome, Nashville. These were my people that created things like hospitals. Orphan care, the abolition of the slave trade, civil rights movement, fighting against poverty, you're gonna see Followers of Jesus who believe in the resurrection because of their belief in the resurrection are in the dead center of these movements. Is it only Christians? Absolutely not. God gives great capacity for good to all kinds of people, but everywhere you look, when there is goodness happening in the world, there are Christians in the center of it. Nicholas Kristof, who is a self-avowed agnostic, writes for the New York Times, reports on poverty and natural disaster and other things like that around the world. He's an expert in human suffering. Uh, he is a friend to Christianity, but he is no Christian himself according to his own profession. Christoph not long ago wrote this in the New York Times. He said, in certain circles, Christians constitute one of the few groups that it's safe to mock openly, yet the negative caricature is incomplete and unfair. I have little in common politically or theologically with Christians, but I've been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places combating illiteracy and warlords, famine and disease, humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it, and it is offensive to me to see good people derided. I must say that a disproportionate share of the aid workers I've met in the wildest places over the years, long after anyone sensible had evacuated, have been Christians. In the U.S. and abroad, the safety net of soup kitchens, food pantries, and women's shelters depends heavily on Christian donations and Christian volunteers. I think this is what Christoph is saying. For every ugly story you've heard, there's a dozen really beautiful ones. They just don't advertise themselves. This is the hard thing, because like one of the key virtues of Christianity is humility, and so you don't broadcast your goodness, but maybe we should. I mean, Jesus said, let your light shine before men. Now, that sounds like advertising a little bit. Not to point people to you, but to point people to me. Broadcast it, let your light shine. Go public with your faith. Maybe that's our greatest sin is not failing to love our neighbor well, but failing to demonstrate to the world how we're loving our neighbors well, because Christians are everywhere that you can find goodness. Everywhere that you can find neighbor love, Christians are in the center of it, often taking the lead 
It is all true. It is all beautiful. The truer Christianity, it's all beautiful. And finally, it's all going to be okay. Historically, Christianity has always appealed less to those who are crushing it at life. And it's always appealed more to those who have come to the recognition that they are weak, that they sin and fall short of the glory of God, and that they suffer. And so there are four groups of people that the resurrection speaks to especially and loudly. It's the discarded people, the damaged people, the defeated people, and the dead people. So I'll just go quickly through those one by one, and then we'll close our service and get you to your lunches or wherever it is that you're going in your nice pastel outfits. <laughs> discarded people are made prominent. Women are chosen to be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which in those days, if you wanted to make a good case that this really happened, you would not choose women as your primary eyewitnesses. That's an unfortunate thing about that culture. That culture was very patriarchal and paternalistic and looked down upon women as well as many other groups including the economically poor, including those who are ethnically not Jewish. In a court of law, a woman's testimony was not admissible because women, according to the men, were not to be trusted. And here Jesus is, the man of all men, the manly man, as Dostoevsky said, choosing women and women alone as his star eyewitnesses. And what, what, what do, does the angel say to the women? Go tell the others. Go tell all the men who are hiding that Christ has risen. You know, my dear friend Anderson Spickard, who um, believes the resurrection, right, Gif? Who has had to believe the resurrection said this one year ago in a little guys group that Giff and Anderson and a few other, others are part of. He said the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let any type of person in. And that's what we see here. Christianity is uniquely welcoming. The world Jesus lived in, women were ignored and discarded. So were Gentiles, so were the poor, so were the sick, so were the weak, so were the disabled, so were those with special needs. And these are all people that Jesus decided that he was going to turn into celebrities. How do we honor this at CPC? We try to honor this in many ways, but one of the, one of the honors that we have is a very robust community of people with disabilities and special needs in our church. In all likelihood, if you have come here at least a few times, you will have been greeted at the door or, or you will have been uh, served communion by or heard a scripture read from, just like last Sunday, somebody who has autism, Down syndrome, in a wheelchair, has you know, a, 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 a slowness of mental faculties, you have been served 
by somebody who fits one or more of those descriptions. There's a very significant reason for that. There's a reason why we choose to be a community that turns these beloved of God into our celebrities such that it's not uncommon for a person with autism or Down syndrome or in a wheelchair to serve communion to a governor or a chief executive or a rock star. Because the resurrection turns the hierarchies upside down. Things work differently in the community of Christ than they do anywhere else where everybody has equal dignity, equal prominence, equal significance. No one's discarded. Then damaged people are made fruitful. It is not insignificant that Mary Magdalene is one of the women chosen. Mary Magdalene, who had for years been tormented by demons. She was the woman who was a public spectacle in the community for many years. She was the woman, when people saw her or heard her voice, they would hide their children. This is who Jesus decides to target as his star witness after healing her. To reverse the public narratives that had been promoted about her. She is no longer the crazy spectacle. Now she's the apostle to the apostles. Now she's the evangelist to the evangelists. Now she is the privileged first person who gets to hear the words, he is risen, just as he said. So a few years ago, started a group called the Knuckleheads. And uh, I'll invite you to show the slides. My friend Chris, Chris Coleman's an artist. You may have seen his art around town. He's also an incredibly skilled guitarist and just savant at everything creative that he attempts. And we started this group called the Knuckleheads for the same reason that Scotty Smith, an older pastor and mentor of mine, started a group in response to the Promise Keepers movement called Promise Breakers as just a simple acknowledgement that none of us lives up entirely to the things that we say we believe and we constantly need grace. And so the Knuckleheads was essentially a group of four of us. Chris has since moved to Florida, so we've disbanded. But the Knuckleheads is a group of people and, and, and part of our purpose was to get together and acknowledge A, how damaged we are, and B, how amazing Christ is. And I'll never forget a statement that Chris made in one of our meetings. This was when his, his art was really starting to take off. He said, you know, if you gave me the choice to end my love-hate relationship with restlessness, as he lives with kind of a chronic low-grade anxiety, He's never been quite able to get rid of. He said, if you gave me a choice to get rid of that and to be happy all the time, I would say no. And the reason why I would say no is that my best creativity depends on that restlessness. You ever heard the term, the tortured artist? Well, here, here's an example. That's right in line with what the scriptures say, you guys. So much so that Paul was able to say, we rejoice in our sufferings even because... Our sufferings actually produce beauty, perseverance, character, hope. He says elsewhere about what he called the thorn in the flesh. I delight in my weakness because that's when the strength and the power of God shines through my life the most. 
Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the famous grief expert, put it this way, beautiful people do not just happen. Beautiful people have known defeat, struggle, suffering, and loss. Damaged people are made fruitful. Defeated people are uncanceled. You will not be shamed and punished for the things that you shame and punish yourself about even the most. My two favorite verses in the Bible, the first is Jesus wept. Because that tells me that he empathizes with everyone in their weakness. And the second one, just an excerpt from one of these verses here, and Peter. Peter was the one who had betrayed Christ the most when Christ was on his way to the cross. Denied him three times. Peter was very likely assuming that he had been disqualified as a follower of Christ or as useful in any way to Christ. And so Christ makes certain that there's an exclamation point sent ahead to Peter through the, the words of the women, go tell the others and Peter that we're good. I've got a job for him to do. I know he loves me. Let him know so he's not nervous about my coming. So he's not anxious about seeing me again. You know, I believe that Jesus loves to give special attention to those who feel the most defeated. I believe that the reasons why people avoid church and have the courage maybe, some people, to come only once a year maybe on Easter for several reasons. One is maybe a lack of interest in the things of God. Another is maybe a lack of inspirational ministry by the church. It's part of our job to honor the aesthetic of Christ and the aesthetic of, of our ministry. And maybe we fall short of that. But I think the main reason, especially by those who really want to know and walk with God, why they avoid church, is they cannot shake the belief that they have deep down that God is disgusted with them. met a girl named Lindsay, a young woman named Lindsay, at a wedding that I was officiating for. And I said, do you have a church? And she says, you know, I really want to be part of a church, but I'm too damaged. I'm too messed up. I'm too ashamed to go to church. And this is where I got to say to Lindsay what I get to say to you, if you have any of those feelings yourself. Those places where you like yourself the least are the, are the places where Jesus wants to love you the most. And Peter, insert your name in there. Jesus' favorite material to work with is our guilt, our regret, our shame, our hurt, our fear, our loneliness, our weariness. He loves to work with that stuff. He doesn't care about your resume. Doesn't. Doesn't care about your Sunday best. He doesn't care about it. Doesn't care about your successes. He cares about meeting you in your guilt, your hurt, and your fear. You 
If someone were to tell you that the most attractive thing to God is not people who have their act together, but people who have stopped acting, how would it change you? That's who he is. And then finally, dead people are given a future. Matthew's account of this story adds a significant detail. It says he's risen, but it also says he's risen just as he said to remind us that everything Jesus said would come to pass, even the miraculous things happened. And the only things that didn't happen are the things that have yet to happen. And what has yet to happen is what he promised in John 11, where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. There's a second coming of Christ that that, that is going to happen at some point in time. And Jesus is going to call up from the grave all those who are dead in Christ, the Bible tells us, and, and usher us into a world that will never end and that has no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's the promise. So... I'll close with this. I'm wearing my happy socks. Do you like these? So the first time I ever saw this pair of socks, they were being worn by another man named Al. Al was in his early 60s. He's a member of our church. He was a deacon here. He could do 19 pull-ups in his early 60s. It's a lot of pull-ups. Al was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And as soon as he got the diagnosis, he invited three of our pastors, uh, David Filson, Todd Teller, and myself, to visit with him and his family members in his home. And he was wearing these socks. And I said, what are those socks about? He said, oh, those are my happy socks. And I said, tell me about those happy socks. And he said, well, when I first got the diagnosis, I asked myself, why me? But then, not long after that, I asked the question, why not me? I believe these things. Perhaps this is an opportunity for me in the remaining time that I have to be a demonstration to the people in my life that these things are all true, that these things are all beautiful, and it's all going to be okay. Then he said, I wear my happy socks every day to remind me that earth has no sorrow, that heaven can't heal. And so... Al went on to be with God. We had his funeral. And right after the funeral, his wife gifted me with these socks. And she said, Al wanted you to have these. And so it is my commitment to wear these socks every Easter. I have ever since Al has passed, and I will. And I don't know when I'm going to quit my job, but it will be when these happy socks are worn out. So maybe 20 more years, I don't know. They've got maybe 20 more wears in them. These things are trustworthy and true. If you do not believe these things, I have no hope to offer you. If you do believe these things, then you have already overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Thank you for dear people who are generous with their time, willing to endure a 40-minute sermon. 
when they have other things to do and other places to go. And I, I, I thank you, Lord, that all of these things are true. And that the truest versions of the Christian faith are all beautiful. And it's all going to be okay because of Christ, in whose name we pray and for whose sake we now sing. Amen. Let's stand together.